Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. We are rolling through Romans, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, the most important letter of all time, the greatest of all time, the GOAT, if you will. All right, let's pick it up at uh, chapter 2. Uh, we began chapter 2 last time. I just want to read that that first little chunk of scripture in that chapter, verses 1 through 11. Uh, just to set the context for you, St. Paul writes, Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for by the standard by which you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the very same things. We know that the judgment of God on those who do such things is true. Do you suppose then, you who judge those who engage in such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you hold his priceless kindness, forbearance, and patience in low esteem, unaware that the kindness of God would lead you to repentance? By your stubbornness and and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath. And revelation of the just judgment of God, who will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance and good works. But wrath and fury to those who selfishly disobey the truth and obey wickedness. Yes, affliction and distress will come upon every human being who does evil, Jew first and then Greek. But there will be glory, honor, and peace For everyone who does good, Jew first and then Greek. There is no partiality with God. Okay, so once again, what Paul is doing here is he's revealing this imaginary conversation partner that he's been talking to the whole time. And in chapter one, he was talking about the pagan world and how they've turned aside from God and gone into all kinds of uh, idolatry and immorality and wickedness, and they are without excuse because even though they don't have supernatural revelation, they do have the revelation of nature, the natural law. They ought to have known better, even if they don't know specific stuff about God. They know enough not to do these things. And so Paul says they're without excuse. And now he's talking to an imaginary Jewish debate partner, whether it's a, a Jewish believer in Jesus as the Messiah, if you will, a Messianic Jew, uh, a Hebrew Catholic, as it were. It's hard to say, but When he says, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, he's he's talking now, and and, and as Scott Hahn says, this is really the mirror image of chapter 1, but it's applied to the covenant people of God, because they have natural revelation, they also have supernatural revelation, they have something that the pagans don't have, which is the revealed law of God, the covenant of God, and it's intriguing, because this whole thing of God not showing partiality we're kind of on, on the same footing here. This is a theme that's all throughout Scripture. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, back in the Old Covenant, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God who is not partial and takes no bribe. You cannot bribe God. You, you can't say, well, I donated a lot of money to the church. Or I, I, I made a donation to Relevant Radio. That's fantastic. I'm glad you did. That's, that's great. But that does not solve your sin problem. Now, it might be a mitigating factor when we're, we're looking at rewards and punishments for, for the afterlife. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a separate deal. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but again, th- this theme that there is no partiality with God is, again, woven all throughout the scriptures. Just, just going to give you a couple more things. Psalm 62, verse 13 
It says, To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you repay a man according to his work. Which is pretty much exactly what St. Paul says here in Romans chapter 2. Sirach, the book of Sirach, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, in uh, Sirach chapter 5, verses 4, 5, and 6, uh, we read this. Do not say, I sinned, and what happened to me? Now, this is, the, this is the perspective of, hey, you know, I did something bad, but I haven't been zapped yet. I haven't been hit by a lightning bolt. Maybe maybe God doesn't really know about my sin, or maybe he's just going to let me do this. This is going to be my thing, and we have an understanding, he and I, and I have my pet sin. I can get away with it because I'm special. Do not say, I sinned, and what happened to me? For the Most High is slow to anger. Do not be so confident of atonement that you add sin to sin. In other words, don't compound this mess, okay? Verse 6, do not say his mercy is great. He will forgive the multitude of my sins, for both mercy and wrath are with him, and his anger rests on sinners. So this is, again, a very, very apropos passage. uh, The book of Sirach, chapter 5, verses 4, 5, and 6, really dovetails nicely with Paul's thinking. And again, this all makes sense because Paul is a trained rabbi. He knows the Old Covenant through and through. And he's using a lot of these same terms, mercy, wrath. And again, this is part of Paul's larger argument, which began back in chapter one, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. There will come a a day of judgment. So again, he's setting the table for the great gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we get out of this mess? Well, that that will come later. But I I really like this passage uh, from Sirach because it really does speak to the whole thing of the whole problem with presumption, the sin of presumption. We're going to get into this as well. This is very much intertwined with this passage. So it's interesting because Paul speaks here of the deeds, good deeds, evil deeds, the relationship, if you will, between faith and works, faith and deeds. Now, this is really a key to understanding the letter to the Romans in general And as you know, both Protestants and Catholics use Romans to justify, (laughs) that was an unintentional pun, the the whole doctrine of justification was really key to the Protestant Revolution. How is it that we are justified before God? How is it that God forgives us and, and sets us right with him? Well, Dr. Luther, Martin Luther, who of course touched off the Protestant Revolution, he act, Dr. Luther doctored the text of Romans in various places, and we'll look at this when we get to them, where it talks about faith. He would always uh, sort of write in, in the text, he'd, he'd just write in, alone, faith alone. He changed the words of Scripture. You can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, you are not uh, an inspired writer of Scripture. And, and of course, he also wanted to trash the epistle of James, which he called an epistle of straw, a letter of straw, because again, the writer of James gives this example of Abraham, who is a, is a person, our father of faith and works, his faith actually working itself out in, in deeds. Indeed. All right. Okay, that's a bit of a stretch there. But, but having said that, both Catholics and Protestants will use Romans to, to sort of uh, buttress their, their case, their take on the whole issue of how are we made right before God? And do our deeds have anything to do with, with our final state? Well, not, not only is St. Paul talking about this here in Romans chapter 2, but this is also a theme in the New Testament as well. So don't think 
that this concept of, of God taking our deeds and factoring those in, that's not just an old covenant thing. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will do what? He will repay every man for what he has done. For what he has done. You could also look at Matthew chapter 25. I'm not going to go into that. That's a long passage. That's the, uh, I guess you could say, a great passage about the, the universal judgment. We all have our particular judgment. Uh, after we die, we have to stand before God's throne and account for our life. Well, there's also the, the general universal judgment of all people together. And this is where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. You don't want to be a goat, trust me. And uh, you, know, you want to be the greatest of all time, but not that kind of goat. And uh, again, you can look that up in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. This is the great, what's called the Bema judgment, uh, the great throne judgment, the great white throne, where uh, God separates the sheep from the goats. And, and what's the criteria on there? It's the deeds, the deeds of mercy, visiting those who are sick, in prison, clothing the naked, all that sort of stuff. And the righteous don't don't even kind of realize that they're righteous. They're like, well, when do we do all this stuff? And Jesus says, well, whenever you did it to the least of one of these, you did it to me. And to the goats, he says, whenever you didn't do it to the least of one of these, you didn't do it for me. And, and, and it, for the righteous, it, it's just kind of like breathing. It's very natural. They don't even know that they're necessarily uh, doing uh, good deeds that will please the Lord. It, it's just kind of part and parcel of being connected to the vine. So in John chapter 15, he talks about the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. When we are connected to the vine in that state of grace, it's, it's like the sap flowing through the vine. And that enables us to bear fruit, the fruit of good works for the kingdom. And it, it's God do, doing them, if you will, in and through us. And it's just a beautiful thing to think about here. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. This is our new study on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. But again, this, this theme where, where deeds do come into account, also in John's Gospel, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, one of the most clear statements in the entire New Testament, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. So this would be the particular judgment here that each one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So I can't resist this. I got, I got to share one more with you here. This is from Actually, a couple more. Colossians, I can't resist. Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So again, that, that, that term partiality that Paul is picking up on here in Romans chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, If you invoke as father him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So again, this this idea that God is not a respecter of persons, and in, in that, don't think that 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 you're going to get any kind of special privileges 
because you're you. I mean, you're very special to God, obviously. He loves you very much. You are unique and irreplaceable. But uh, he is a very fair and just judge. And that, that actually is good news for us. That is good news for us. So again, Paul started this whole argument back in Romans 1.18 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Okay, now one of the, one of the things that, that he is saying here to his imaginary debate partner is that you are doing the same stuff as the pagans are doing that I just got done talking about in chapter one. And, and every Jewish reader of this text from Paul would say, what are you talking about? We, we are not, we're not committing these, these dastardly deeds that the heartlessness and the strife and the murder and deceit and all, and all the sexual immorality that you were talking about in chapter one. We didn't, we don't do that stuff. What do you, what do you mean? And, and they'd be right to say that in a certain sense, because uh, Josephus, the great historian of the times, uh, writes about how around the time of the end of the Roman Empire, and Josephus was roughly contemporaneous with, with the life of Jesus, he, he did note that the Jews do not take part in, in the moral wickedness and cesspool that was going on in ancient Rome, where sexual immorality was rife. Uh, around the time of the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, just horrific things were taking place. Um, I, I'm not going to list a, a catalog of, of sin, a breviary of sin for you here, but uh, er, every sexual sin under the sun, you could possibly mention they were doing it. And not only that, but abortion was rampant as well. And infanticide, babies were simply left unwanted uh, by the side of the road, uh, easy prey for birds of carrion and wild animals. And, 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 this is how cheap human life really was. <laughs> a lot of similarities with our own time, as many writers have, have noticed. But, but the, the bottom line is, is Paul is saying, you guys are doing some of this stuff too. Maybe not, not all those specific deeds, but you, you are sinners as well. Every, everybody is. Everybody is. And so we, you have to make sure that you're guarding against the sin of presumption. You can't say, I belong to the covenant people of God, therefore I am in. It doesn't matter what I do. No, it really, really does. It really, really does. So what he's saying here, he's really talking about presumption, the sin of presumption. And the catechism lays it out pretty well, I think. Uh, if you look at uh, paragraphs uh, 2091 and 2092 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says the first commandment, this is a section about the commandments, obviously. The first commandment is also concerned with sins against hope, namely despair and presumption. So that's interesting. The, the two sins against hope are despair. And despair basically says, God can't forgive me. I, I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. I've done something so wrong. I can never be forgiven. That's despair. And then there's presumption which is the attitude that God must forgive me. And I think it was G.K. Chesterton, I could be wrong, but I think it was Chesterton who said that presumption and despair are the two ditches on either side of the road. We don't want to fall into those because either, either way, uh, that is a, a major detour that, that can, we're not going to get to our destination. We've got to stay on the main road. Back to the catechism, it says, by despair, man ceases to hope for his personal salvation from God for help in attaining it, or for the forgiveness of sins. Despair is contrary to God's goodness, to his justice, for the Lord is faithful to his promises and to his mercy. 
And then paragraph 2092, it says there are two kinds of presumption. Either man presumes upon his own capacities, hoping to be able to save himself without help from on high. And this would be the sort of Jansenist idea that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get yourself to heaven by just being a good person. It doesn't work. Or the catechism says he presumes upon God's almighty power or his mercy, hoping to obtain, I like this line, hoping to obtain his forgiveness without conversion and glory without merit. That's a great line. People want forgiveness without conversion. They want their sins forgiven, but they don't want to have to repent. They don't want to have to change. They want the glory, but they don't want to earn it. They don't want to pay the price of actually changing one's life to be in conformity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that, that this is a, a major, major problem that Paul has to uh, try to encourage his listeners. Don't fall into this trap. And so he, he there's a great quote from uh, in Scott Hahn's commentary on Romans from St. Caesarius of Arles. St. Caesarius of Arles. And if you're not quite sure who that is, uh, you're in good company. <laughs> but you can look him up. St. Caesarius of Arles. A-R-L-E-S is how you spell Arles. And here's what he said. This is really interesting about this idea of, of presumption and also despair, too. He says, quote, We must fear lest someone believes so strongly that he will receive God's mercy that he does not dread his justice. That's kind of interesting because we know about the divine mercy, the divine mercy chaplet. We pray it every day on Relevant Radio. Jesus, I trust in you. We, aren't we supposed to have absolute, utter, 100% confidence in God's mercy? Yeah. But here's the deal. Here's the trick. We must fear so, lest someone believes so strongly that he will receive God's mercy that he does not dread his justice. St. Caesarius says, if a man does this, he has no faith. He has no faith. Why is that? Because the key is repentance. The way to access God's mercy is repentance. Change your way. Repent and believe in the gospel. You got to change. You, you got to become obedient to the gospel. You can't continue on in the type of sinful lifestyles that Paul condemned in Romans chapter one. You, you need to repent to get access to the mercy. All right, back to St. Caesarius for a second. Listen to this. Quote, likewise, if he dreads his justice, God's justice so much that he despairs of his mercy, there is also no faith. So this is again, the sin of despair that you despair of his mercy. God can't forgive me. I've done something so wrong. He says, God is not only merciful, but also just. So let us believe in both. Believe in his justice and his mercy. Let us not despair of his mercy because we fear his justice, nor love his mercy so much that we disregard his justice. Therefore, we should neither hope wrongly nor despair wickedly. A man who hopes wrongly thinks that he can merit mercy without penance and good works. One who despairs wickedly does not believe he will receive mercy, even after the performance of good works. Wow, end of quote. All right, that, that's, that's really, really powerful there. So this idea of despair, that, that, that's the unforgivable sin that Jesus was talking about in the gospel. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's basically saying God can't forgive me. He's not powerful enough. That, and if you don't think you're sick enough to go to the doctor, you don't think he can heal you, of course you're not going to go for the operation. You're not going to get the heart transplant because you think he's going to kill you or, or it's not possible. It won't work. 
you need that life-saving heart transplant. And that comes when Jesus gives us this new heart, this new spirit he puts within us when we are baptized. And, and we are, when we are forgiven for our sins, that's renewed. So this is what St. Paul is talking about. Don't despair. And don't presume either. Stay on that middle path. This is The Faith Explained, and I'm your host, Kale Clark. Thanks for joining me today for our Letter to the Romans discussion. We will have more in the next episode tomorrow. If you missed one, check the podcast on the relevant radio app or wherever you get your podcasts, and please do share them with a friend. Thanks for helping out. God bless you. Peace.